Ryan Dixon and Rory Boylan host Tape to Tape, the hockey podcast by Sportsnet. Welcome to Tape to Tape, T2T. I'm Ryan Dixon. I'm a writer for Sportsnet.ca. With me in the booth, as always, Sportsnet's NHL editor, Rory Boylan. Okay, I'm not going to waste any time. I know you want to talk about something here. Ryan is is on cloud nine this morning. I am coming out of my skin. (laughs) You all think it's the start of the hockey season. No, 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 friends. It is the exciting culmination of my beer league summer schedule. And my God, (laughs) my team, the mighty Galaxy Troopers, have made it to the final. I don't want to get too lost in the weeds here, friends. But my team plays in the winter and summer. And we haven't been in a final in a solid, I'm going to say, half decade. So I think I was on your last championship team. Definitely the last championship. (laughs) So I'm even setting the bar lower than that, just getting to the last game. But my God, it is preposterous how exciting it is. I was having this conversation with one of the guys on the team in the parking lot who's a doctor, and we were just talking about how thrilling it is when your stupid beer league team wins an overtime game as we did in the first round. Then we just won another nail-biter 2-1. And how, like, you understand there's a lot of stuff in life that's way more important, but it kind of all just fades to black there for that 90 minutes when you're playing. And it really just feels like you're living and dying with every chip out and just screaming from the bench. Yeah, I remember, you know, it it sucks for me. I haven't, I played beer league last year, but I had taken a couple years off. I don't think I'm going to be able to play again this year, unfortunately, but I miss those moments. Uh, And I remember I still have that, the, the championship trophy thing, the individual trophy that you get from when our team won however many years ago that was. And I remember that run. I remember the nail-biting games. I remember, I don't know if this was the doctor you were talking to, Gordon, just these ridiculous stick-handling moves that he would make. And I can I can remember everything about it. And it's just beer league. And I'm going but, to miss it again this so year. But so much more, Rory. So much more. It is so, so much more. I'll tell you, Ryan, I made my return last year to beer league. And there were a couple... Oh my goodness moments. <laughs> it's really hard if you stop to get back into it again, I find, because, man, it takes a toll on your body. The, the lesson is keep playing. And yes, it was Dr. Gord who I was speaking to. Yeah. We're a long way from the point in the NHL season where we're living and dying with every chip out. But it is exciting, friends, that training camp, they open later this week across the league, signaling that we are not that far away, really less than a month from real NHL hockey and the start of the 2018-19 season, we are going to start really in earnest our coverage of this upcoming season here today on the Tape to Tape podcast. We're bringing on Eric Engels. He, of course, covers the Montreal Canadiens for Sportsnet. The Canadiens jumping into the headlines to start the work week very, very early the wee hours of Monday morning, trading Max Pacioretty to the Vegas Golden Knights for a return of Thomas Tatar, prospect Nick Suzuki, and a second-round pick. But before we get to Eric, we're going to talk a little bit about some training camp battles. We're going to look at the Toronto Maple Leafs' blue line and some other spots around the league and within that division with the Bruins up the middle. 
try and give you a sense of who you might want to keep an eye on in terms of people battling for positions, trying to establish themselves as full timers. But before we get there, Rory, we're going to we're going to introduce some segments this year on tape to tape. Changing it up a bit. Yeah, a little bit. And one of the ones we're going to debut right now is something we like to call would you rather hmm now as the title suggests we're basically going to lay out two scenarios and say what would you rather do so in light of that big patch ready trade here's the question if you're the vegas golden knights would you rather go all in and sacrifice a touted prospect like cody glass make the move for eric carlson or Mm -hmm. some other mega move and just try and do this thing right now Or would you rather say making the cup final was amazing. We can dine out on that for three years. Mm -hmm. Let's make the shrewd moves like trading for Pacioretty without giving up our, either of our two top prospects and still kind of play some mix of living in the now, but also making sure that your original plan, what we all assume the original plan of a three to five year uh, timeline is still in place. What would you rather do? You know, I, this is not the sensible move by any kind of analytics metric, um, any kind of if you're if you're trying to play it conservative or anything like that. I'm going all in if I'm the Vegas Golden Knights here. I'm trying to still get Eric Carlson. The other teams that are possibly in on Eric Carlson, the likes of Dallas Stars, San Jose Sharks, they have much less cap room, at least $4 million less in cap space than the Vegas Golden Knights do. They're still just over $9 million in available cap space. They can move some money around. Nate Schmidt, who was their number one defenseman minutes-wise last year, is going to be out for the first 20 games for uh, that positive test, uh, which is, you know, <laughs> a little confusing. Uh, but he's going to be gone. Shea Theodore, you project, is going to be the number one defenseman for this team for a while. But whether or not he's ready to take on that role for a Stanley Cup contender or not remains to be seen. I am going all out. I'm trading Cody Glass. I'm trading my first round pick. I'm moving whatever I can possibly do to bring in Eric Carlson, completely transforming that defense core, taking it to a whole nother level, adding another superstar face of the franchise type of talent. You are risking that he doesn't sign an extension and stay on. But you also have this a little bit of luxury in in the salary cap space that you have. William Carlson is making $5.25 million against the cap for one more season. Is he going to replicate that or not? I kind of don't think he's going to replicate that. I don't think that he's going to be someone who's going to be signing on $5 million for the long term. So maybe you can save a little bit of money there. I think there are options. They have st- they still have so many defensemen. You can you can shave off guys if you have to save some some room for cap space and really take not just one run at it. You can potentially sign Carlson and you already have Max Patch already signed for another four years after this one. Take two, three runs at a Stanley Cup. You know, the owner's goal for this team was to win it by year six. You've already made it to one Stanley Cup final. I mean, keep this going. If you add Eric Carlson, the Vegas Golden Knights are going for the cup for multiple seasons. When that's done, then you step back and say, okay, we've built up all this goodwill. We've taken our runs. We've had some superstars on this team already, which is something that a lot of other teams can't say in this same window. Now we're going to step back and we're going to rebuild from scratch and do it that way. But I think Vegas is in a very unique situation here to go for it. And to me, when you are in this position to do it, 
you know, kind of these safe plays go out the window. You you should be pushing to go to the Stanley Cup because when your window is open, you never know how quickly that's going to close. I'm not going to try and talk you out of that, but the one thing I will say is you mentioned Carlson, and, and he will be a very big point of intrigue to see what he churns out this year. Yep. But I look at Carlson and Stassi, and I think that could be a just fine one, two, but you know, Stastny is 32. He's more a crafty player than a star player. And Carlson, we're, we're just not exactly sure where things are going to fall. He certainly figures to be a, a very quality player. I just wonder if ultimately you might add Carlson and then go, we just don't have it up the middle. And Cody glass in very short order could maybe be that guy. Yeah, and then, you know, maybe Eric Halla is a guy that you could turn to to put at center. He's capable of playing that. He played on the wing most of the time. So, And I still think there are better years to come from Eric Halla. So maybe he ends up being the better center play than William Carlson because his future is still so much up in the air. So I think you have you have that option potentially to do that. Um, you do want to be strong at center for sure, but I think having Eric Carlson helps offset that at least a little bit. Um, and maybe you can try and, you know, go down the trade route to get a second line center to help you with with that. But I just think these opportunities are so extremely rare to pick up a star at the level of Eric Carlson that I think when you're in the situation that the Vegas Golden Knights are in, you, you've you already made that commitment to Paul Stasny, whether or not he turns out to be that, you know, true number one or not, you are with him for the next three years. He has to be at least a two-line center for me. And I think he's going to be actually a real nice compliment to Max Pacioretty, the same way he was a real nice compliment to Nick Ehlers and Patrick Laine with the Winnipeg Jets last year. I don't think he needs to be a line driver. I think he just needs to be a guy who can set up Max Pacioretty and his skill set uh, makes you think that he can certainly do that. So I think you just go for Eric Carlson and, and throw caution to the wind and just say, I'm pushing all my chips in. I'm well, all in. While you're on the phone with Ottawa and you're pushing your chips in, I mean, hey, Matt Duchesne is a UFA next hey. summer and so is Mark Stone. So why yeah, don't you yeah. really go all For in sure. and figure out that cap thing later? All right. On to some camp battles. Let's start right here in the big smoke where there's some curiosity in terms of what the – the final six blue liners might look like, or the sixth blue liner specifically on the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, on the back end there. I mean, obviously the talk about the Leafs has been dominated by the incredible first three centers. They're going to run out Matthews, John Tavares, Nazem Kadri. You know, the question all along in, in all along being the last couple of years where the Leafs have done this incredibly fast ground up rebuild has been about the defense. Ron Hainsey came in last year. Um, Nikita Zaitsev have a step back. We'll see what he can do here in year three, but Travis Dermott certainly looks like a find in and looks like he's going to be a long-term fixture, but that number six spot, we're talking about maybe somebody like Connor Carrick nailing that down. Um, we're talking about maybe Hall, who had uh, a great debut last year yeah. with the Leafs. Where he might he score two goals for you this yeah, year. Yeah, he's on pace to, <laughs> to break all of Bobby Orr's record. Timothy Liljegren, who was a really intriguing draft guy because he fell uh, to where the Leafs could nab him, I think at 17, I want to say, uh, in 2017. Mm-hmm. He's already spent a year in North America. What do you think? How are things going to shake out here with 
the the Leafs looking to to shore up that last blue line spot. Now we're working under the assumption that Travis Dermott has a spot, right? I yeah, mean, I there's think no so. reason why he he won't be your number five defenseman. And what he brings, there's a little bit of a risk to his game. So I think he wants somebody as his defense partner who's more of that safe play. I wonder if he ends up working his way up this lineup and Ron Hainsey works his way back down to that uh, third defense pair. Probably not right out of the gate, but I wonder if it evolves that way. The guy I'm watching most closely at camp certainly is Timothy Liljegren because of the high, high upside potential he has. Maybe he's more likely for a midseason or late season call up than he is to make this team out of camp just to give him a second year in North America and and continue to find his way there. And he had a really good first season with the AHL's Marlies. It's just he can take on an even greater role and, and slowly build up. Plus, the Leafs brought in this guy from Russia, Igor Ozaganov. He won the hardest shot competition at the KHL All-Star Game season before last. You know, we really don't know a heck of a lot about this guy, but the Leafs have scouted him heavily. They believe in him. He's a right shot, so he's going to continue that left-right split that Coach Mike Babcock uh, likes if you're playing him uh, with Dermot down there. I don't know if that's too much of a risk to put both of those guys on your on your third uh, defense pair or not. Um but I think that's another guy that I'm I'm watching very, very closely here in training camp. I think the two Swedes, Callie Rosen, Andreas Borgman, the only thing about them, even though the Leafs bring brought them in last year, kind of in similar fashion to what they're doing with Ozhiganov, kind of off the radar, you sign them and bring them in, they both shoot left. And Dermot also shoots left. So do you, is Babcock going to want to go with double lefty on that bottom? Is that enough to keep them off the team? I think they really need to have a strong showing to make this camp. The safe play is to, and the play that I think that they might make is to start the season with Carrick as the guy. They signed him to a one-year, $1.3 million contract rather than cutting him loose. Um, he's, you know, he he had a lot of experience. He was on the pro roster last season as your number seven guy. So maybe you give him that number six spot just you know, he's kind of earned it, kind of, you know, he, maybe you owe it to him a little bit to at least give him that look. But if, if Ojiganov or especially Liljegren have a really strong camp, I really wonder if there's a way one of those two guys nabs that number six spot. And if, if Hainsey isn't the guy who goes down after the bad season that Nikita Zaitsev had yeah. last year, maybe he's a guy that is up for demotion. So the Bruins eliminated the Leafs in seven games in the first round of the playoffs last year. Very strong at the top of the center depth chart, obviously starting with uh, Patrice Bergeron and maybe the best line in hockey, but you go a little lower down. It looks like there could be some room with the departure of Riley Nash yeah. for some some new faces to establish themselves there and a bit of a battle at the 3C. It's going to be really hard to replace what Riley Nash did, really underrated. Uh, he brought a lot to that Bruins team last year. So there are three rookies to keep an eye on in the preseason for the Bruins. Jacob Forsbacka Carlson, he's the guy who comes with the high offensive upside. A second-round draft pick. He's he's going to be the guy that you probably will notice most because he's going to be, I believe, the fastest skater. He's going to be buzzing all over the place, creating offense. That's the type of player he is. Whereas the second guy in this list, Trent Frederick, who's actually a first-round pick, he's more of a gritty guy who might actually fit the third-line the traditional third-line center role better than Forsbacka Carlson, but he's coming out of the NCAA, whereas Forsbacka Carlson spent last year in the AHL, so he's already got that pro experience under his belt. Although, playing in the NCAA, you play against older players who are generally stronger than you, so we'll see how that works out. And the third one is Jack Studnicka, a little bit off the radar. This is your playmaker. I think he's probably the longest shot, but if he has a good 
good preseason and he finds chemistry with the guys he's going to be playing with on that third line he's a guy to also keep an eye on for there for the Bruins all right you are writing about essentially a training camp question for each team here in coming days as camps get going just give us a couple other highlights a few battles you will be keeping an eye on around the league well, one guy who I'm really interested to see from this year is Carolina's Valentin Zykov. This team is always the team that you pick in the preseason as the surprise team that yeah. makes it up. I'm not doing that this year. You've because resolved already. After trading Jeff Skinner, like where are you going to get the goals from? That was your most reliable goal scorer, and he's gone. You didn't really get anything to replace him. Valentin Zykov is a guy I'm keeping a close watch on because he scored 33 goals in 63 AHL games last year. Really, really good pace. Came to the NHL uh, for 10 games, scored three times, got seven points. That's a pretty good start for a guy. So I'm watching him. He's a six foot one, 224 pounder. So he's really solid. He can skate pretty well. I'm keeping a close eye um, on him to see if, if he can maybe have that breakout game. And then I think the one that's kind of flying under the radar, but he probably shouldn't be, is Sebastian Ajo, who I think it was 29 goals he got last year. He could totally blow up, but he's a guy I think you can see coming a lot more than than you can with with Zykov. Um, and then the another one that I'm watching is in uh, uh, Columbus. I mean, what's going to happen with Artemi Panarin and Sergei Bobrovsky this year? Uh, Yarmo Kekalainen on NHL.com said he couldn't commit to either of those guys starting the season there. That has more to do with you're always talking trade, right? And, and these guys are entering the last years of their contracts. But this is a year. This is a Columbus team that should be going for the Stanley Cup. If you trade Bobrovsky without getting a quality number one back, which I don't imagine is going to be part of that deal, Eunice Corposalo is your guy. They love him. But his numbers are a little, there's something left to be desired there. A sub 900 save percentage in the NHL last year. Um, that's not a guy I necessarily feel comfortable moving forward with if I'm trying to win the Stanley Cup. And then another goalie that I'm watching for is out of Buffalo, Carter Hutton. Fabulous season for the St. Louis Blues last year. Really saved them at, at times, I think. But now he's brought in, and he's your number one. Whatever you want to say about Robin Lehner, I mean, he had a 920 save percentage season two years ago. He was definitely not a guy that I felt comfortable with, you know, going to a Stanley Cup final or anything like that. But he wasn't bad. He was a guy. He was a guy. The Sabres seem like a team that, you know, they're ripe to take that step forward. I, I don't know if they can make the playoffs because of the teams in front of them, but... Adding Jeff Skinner to play with Jack Eichel, I think, is a tremendous compliment. Rasmus Dahlin, obviously, can potentially completely transform that blue line right away. But Carter Hutton has never played even half a season's worth of NHL games. So it's all kind of smallish, sample size stuff. Last year was his career year. That's not going to be replicated. Can he even get to a 920 save percentage? I mean, their goalies might kind of set them back or hold them back again this year. So I'm watching Carter Hutton very closely in the preseason Uh, just to see if there's any reason to think that he might be a breakout potential this late in his career or if it's going to be another long season in net for the Buffalo Sabres. Yeah, always a different uh, whole new kettle of fish when all of a sudden you are the guy. You're not pushing your way into the number one role. It's there waiting for you. It's expected that, uh, I mean, obviously you got to prove yourself, but that, you know, it is your job to lose can change the context a little bit. We'll see how Mr. Hutton does with the Sabres. And yes, absolutely. Buffalo, a team that man, it seems like they could go from being in the dregs to just blowing through uh, the middle and, and maybe moving into the upper tier, but who knows the Sabres have heard that story before. All right. Speaking of the Atlantic division, 
Coming up on the other side of the break, we are going to bring in Eric Engels. He's going to talk about the Montreal Canadiens, a team that could well be near the bottom of that division. Uh, they, you have to think in the immediate term, are certainly worse off without Captain Max Pacioretty. Pacioretty traded to the Vegas Golden Knights earlier this week. Mr. Engels coming on to talk about the Pacioretty trade in the Habs. After the break on Tape to Tape. Montreal Canadiens for Sportsnet.ca. It is Eric Engels. Eric, does it feel like your summer is officially over and the season kicked off with this big Pacioretty trade on uh, in the wee hours of Monday? <laughs> I kind of felt officially over, I want to say, a couple weeks ago when I was on the golf course. My game started to slip away from me because I started thinking about all the different things that I was going to write about this season. And, and the minute your your head drifts away from what you're trying to focus on on the golf course, it's not a good thing. So, yeah, you know, we're, we're in full swing here. I, it's it's a funny life being a hockey reporter. You kind of go from zero to 100 in a hurry. And uh, ever since things got underway with the, uh, with the rookie camp opening last week, uh, it has definitely been nonstop, but I love it. And obviously, you know, we expected that it, it would be dramatic one way or the other at the Canadians golf tournament on Monday. Uh, we did not expect that at one o'clock in the morning, Max Pacioretty would be traded. I, I think the drama that was expected was that he would actually be there under very public and uncomfortable circumstances of his situation with Montreal being unresolved. And uh, that was a, that was a pretty big shocker. So you've been all over the place writing and talking about this trade in the 24 hours plus since it happened, let me just ask you this. Have you learned anything new with regard to what may have been at the root of it? We've obviously heard by now that the Canadians, they were pretty uh, adamant that both Jeff Molson and Mark Bergevin said Max Pacioretty had asked for a trade. Pacioretty has said all along he wants to be in Montreal. Have you learned anything in the course of reporting this that sort of shed some light on that whole situation? No, but I'll tell you what I learned that was old. Um, because, uh, you know, it was back in about late November, early December, that some people very close to Max Pacioretty had told me that he had been approached by Mark Bergevin, told that there was a very strong likelihood that he would be traded. And, and perhaps even the effort was made there to tell him, listen, you don't have trade protection. You know, you're, you're, um, You've got three kids. You're the captain of our team. We respect you. If there's someone somewhere where you could see yourself going, uh, you know, we're, we'll try to work with you to get you there. There was no guarantee that he would be traded, but you know, the scenario was presented to him from everything I understood. And I was told such a specific story about it that I thought it absolutely had to be true. It, it was denied about Patrietti, and he asked me not to write about it at the time. Um, it was uh, denied by Canadians management with, you know, Mark Bergevin saying, you know, if it's not this guy, it's another guy and who will it be tomorrow uh, as far as stories were concerned and how they were being manufactured as far as he was concerned. Um, 
But, you know, the interesting thing for me was that as time moved along after that little period where that story was denied to me, it really seemed as though Pacioretty was being maligned and, and kind of marginalized in his role as captain. And you could see it in his body language on the ice. And it wouldn't surprise me if in the end, uh, you know, he inevitably approached management or ownership or whoever you want to pick out because both guys, Jeff Molson and, and Mark Bursman, were saying on Monday that he requested a trade and that was a fact and it absolutely happened. It wouldn't surprise me if inevitably and upon realization that he was going to be traded, he turned to those guys and said, you know, if you're going to do it, do it now because I can't take much more of this stuff. And it was very clear because whatever excuses you want to make for why Pacioretty scored 17 goals last year, coming off a 35 goal season, uh, the construction of the team or lack thereof, Andre Markov and Alexander Radulov departing, which were huge parts of his success the year before. I think the biggest reason he struggled is because his head was being played with in a number of different ways. And it was very frustrating for him to learn that he was being shopped on the open market uh, you know, a guy who had bought a house in Westmount, a downtown region of Montreal, and and was so committed to the team. And naturally, from a pride perspective, not wanting his captaincy to be tainted or for him to be the fall guy for what was turning out to be one of the ugliest seasons in the history of the Canadians. So I think a lot of people look at the Pacioretty saying he never asked out and and management and ownership saying that he did as a he said, he said situation where one party has to be lying. And I think with the context, you know, I'll never be able to say with 100% certainty if the story I was told is, is the truth. Uh, but I'm fairly certain, given the sources that I spoke to and everybody involved in the situation, that it was. And maybe neither, neither party was lying in the situation. One way or the other, guys. And, and just to wrap up the thought on why he was traded, I think the Canadians decided some time ago that they were not going to invest in, the, in, in, in what it was going to cost to keep him in Montreal on his next contract. He had taken a significant haircut at a $4.5 million cap hit, uh, signed you know, for 20, it was a $27 million six-year deal which I believe, you know, very shortly after Phil Kessel was on an eight-year, $8 million a year cap hit, uh, and they had produced quite similarly. And, that, you know, he had realized that it was not a good deal and expected that the Canadians would take care of him on the next one. And I, I don't think that they were invested in that, knowing that there's been holes at the middle and on defense for this franchise for a long time. Uh, they have some value contracts on the wing, and they felt that Pacioretty, and given his status as a perennial 30-goal scorer, could potentially help bring back players in those departments and help them. And also that, you know, they'd want the money available to sign players at those positions when the time comes. So I, I think that that is why he was traded and all the other stuff that became so personal and, and seemingly contentious uh, is kind of the noise that surrounds the situation. Before I ask this question, I want to just lay the base that I think this was a pretty good return for Pacioretty, all things considered. Nick Suzuki, you know, I think it was 13th overall draft pick, you know, very good score at, at the OHL level. Tatar should give you at least 20 goals as you try and, you know, sustain something here in a second round pick. And when you look at what a guy like Jeff Skinner got traded for, who scored at a similar goal rate anyway to Max Pacioretty, there are other other intangibles there, but he went for a, a lot less. So the Habs made out pretty well considering this situation. But Eric, I have to ask you, this has been going on for such a long time. The Habs knew, like you said, they, they weren't going to offer him a new contract. 
he had he had he had asked for a trade over the season. There were reports that he had asked for a trade a couple of years ago too. Do you think? How would you grade how how Bergevin handled this and the return he got? And do you think that there was a time within the last two years or something where if he pulled the trigger, he could have got more for Pacioretty? Yeah, maybe at the beginning of last year before he even played a game, there there was an opportunity there. Maybe in the summer, you know, before at the draft. Uh, but I think if you know if things were so definitive, you know the Canadians the Canadians had come off uh, winning their division a year prior to last season, and and uh, I think you know I don't think Mark Bergevin was necessarily looking to make major alterations at that point, and I don't think he foresaw at all as as much as he's he's actually admitted that he he never even came close to foreseeing that they'd have such a significant drop off from division winners to 28th place, even in light of the fact that they they lost Andre Markov and they lost Alex Radulov and their team had been significantly altered by a, a strange decision to sign Carl Alsner to a five-year deal worth too much money. And I don't think he envisioned that. And I don't think he expected that he'd have to make uh, a move with Pacioretty at that point or that value would be affected in any kind of way. So, it's 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 easy to look back in hindsight and say they should have done this or they should have done that. The other thing is is like Mark Bergevin and the Canadians, no matter how, like what you want to say about how they mismanaged the situation, which they definitely should take ownership of the fact that they did. Um, they never asked for any of this to become so public. You know that was another factor tying a hand behind Bergevin's back that just didn't need to be there and. For whatever reason it was, it got out. And we know that it didn't come from their side that it got out because the Canadians operate like the Kremlin at times. Uh, so, you know, all to say, you take all that into consideration, the fact that Pacioretty was on an expiring deal, um, the fact that he had put up 17 goals last season, although we, we have pretty good reasons to believe that that's not the new normal, Um is very impressive that he got the return that he got. Like you said, it's a better return than what uh, Carolina got for Jeff Skinner. Uh, but that said, Pacioretty, I think, is a much more complete player than Jeff Skinner. He's not just a goal scorer. He's a penalty killer. He's a guy who worked very hard to work on his defensive sure. game and become a much more complete player. But, I mean, I expected that the Canadians would be very wise. I, I suggested that the Canadians would be very wise to cut base and take a severe loss in trading Pacioretty just to avoid the distraction, the distraction and the negativity that came with bringing him back under these circumstances. So I was blown away by the return that first man got in the deal. What do you think in terms of Suzuki, a 2017 pick, possibly making this roster? Is that is there a decent chance of that? And what do you see? I don't know how much you've had a chance to play the depth chart, but what do you see as the Canadians' first two forward lines on opening night? Oh my goodness! You're really putting me on the spot with that one. Uh, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't dealt too deeply on on either front because this really is a, a wait and see camp. This is a camp where you have a lot of bodies uh, with NHL ambition here, and you could say that of any camp. But but really, the opening is there, especially for a team that finished 28th place, for guys to really uh, ruffle the cards here, shuffle the cards, or shuffle the deck, or however you want to put it. Uh, you know, I, I could I could definitely see that Nick Suzuki will be given every opportunity possible to make this roster, uh, but they're under no pressure whatsoever with very little expectation going into this season to graduate him before he's ready. So, 
he's ultimately, to borrow a line from Mark Bergman, going to make that decision for them. I don't want to peg what he is or who he can be or whether or not he deserves to play right now before I've even watched him play. Because beyond uh, YouTube samples and highlights, I'm not an expert on Nick Suzuki uh, or, or reading the draft analysis uh, across the internet and speaking to amateur scouts who have given their reports to me. Um, I want to see him for myself and, and make that judgment. And I'm sure the Canadians feel the same way about it. And that's why they haven't necessarily pegged him as a center in their depth chart. They want to see where he's going to fit best. They want to see if he's going to excel at that position. Uh, if he can, that is a tremendous coup, whether he plays in the NHL or not this year, because, you know, you look at what is, what has been a decades long problem up the middle of the ice for this team. And that's not going to change at the NHL level this year. The future is extremely bright. They've got the third overall pick in Jesperi Kotkaniemi, who by all accounts is going to be a very solid NHL player. Ryan Paling, who was drafted in the first round a year prior, is a really good two-way player who's got great character and and I have no doubt is going to be an impactful NHL player, a middle six center, I think, that is capable of producing, but really has that kind of winning attitude that Mark Bergevin admires so much, but most you know, anyone who runs a hockey team would admire. And the idea that if Suzuki excels at the center position, that the Canadians could potentially have Finland's top center, the USA's top center, and Canada's uh, one of the two top six centers at the World Juniors this year is a real enticing one for Canadians fans who have been longing for depth at the position for so long. I want to ask you about Kotkaniemi. The Habs just had a rookie tournament. Um, you know, he's not going to come into the NHL right away, but but how did he look at this tournament among some of his peers? Yeah, you know what? Like, he played two games, and game one, it, it, like, it was night and day from game one to game two. Game one, he looked like a kid who knew he was drafted third overall, was playing in front of Canadians fans for the first time, playing on a North American rink for the fourth time in his life. Uh, at least at a com- in a competitive atmosphere. And he could not have looked less comfortable on the ice than he did in that game. He just, it, it was a disaster. Everything he touched did not work. You know, at one point in the game, he was, uh, he was uh, asking for a one-timer on the power play and the puck came uh, very slowly over to him and he whiffed and it went through his legs. Like it was a, it was it was a microcosm of how badly that game went for him, and but but what happened afterwards was almost the most impressive thing I could have possibly seen on that night because he kind of sloughed it off in the room. Like there was no, he wasn't talking about how terrible he was or you know putting him on putting it on himself or how embarrassed he was or this or that. He really just said, you know what, it's not a big deal. It's the summer season. Talk to me when the real season begins. Like he he. That attitude is going to bring him a long way, and, and, and it shows that he's got some thick skin. And I'll tell you, uh, you know, he, he promised that he would be better with every period that moves forward. And, you know, on, in Sunday's game against the Maple Leafs prospects, he definitely stood out. You could see all the attributes that would have the Canadians excited to pick him at third overall. And no matter what you want to say about this kid and where he ended up in the draft, the Canadians who have not been able to trade or sign a trade for or sign a center in the six years that Mark Bergevin has been here, uh, you know they had the opportunity to draft the best, the consensus best center available in this draft 
Sure, they would have loved to have done it at fifth or sixth overall if they could have moved down and acquired an asset for doing so. But I don't think they're kicking themselves for the decision they made to to get the third to to get to get the best center available in this draft at third overall. And uh, I think they truly believe that he could prove to be the third best player or even the best player that came out of this draft. Uh, and I see character in Kotkaniemi that suggests, and the skill set too, and the range and the size uh, and the way he thinks the game that makes me believe that he could at least be the third best player in this draft. So I think that's really exciting for Canadians fans. And maybe the pressure comes off of him a little bit now that Suzuki enters the fray. Let's stay with the kids here, Eric, to wrap up, because I think it's becoming increasingly obvious to outsiders anyways that it's not about this year for Montreal and whether we're calling it a retool or pick your word that is anything but rebuild. It's it's quite clear there's been a renewed focus on bringing in youngsters. We've talked at length about Kotkaniemi. You mentioned paling the first rounder from 2017, but... Just in general, how much has the perception of the Canadian system changed, even going back 12 months? I mean, you look at 2017, and let, let's just take Kotkaniemi and Paling out of it. A guy like Josh Brook, I know you've written about it in the past, all of a sudden looks like he might be a second-round find. Uh, certainly Caden Primo at the end of 2017. They drafted 11 guys just a few months ago in June. As the Canadians do some kind of pivot toward youth, what would you say to people about where the system is now relative to where it was a, a relatively short time ago? Well, it's the greatest improvement that's happened in the Mark Bergevin uh, era of the Montreal Canadiens, and it, it's seemingly happened overnight, starting with the 2017 draft where, by consensus, they really got a good haul. Uh, 2018, 11 players picked, seven of them centers, so filling out the coffers at that position, and obviously with quality, too. And they now have 10 picks going into 2019, which, you know, by all accounts and the people I speak to could go down as one of the best drafts in the history of the NHL in terms of its depth. Uh, and, you know, maybe the, maybe the biggest thing that's changed here is what's going on on the development side. Uh, you know, Francis Bouillon, Rob Ramage are taking care of these prospects on a daily basis throughout their years. They're visiting with these guys and they're working with them and giving them all the pointers and the confidence uh, an external application that, that they can receive. And then you have, you know, quality hockey people like Luke Richardson and Dominic Ducharme joining the NHL bench and Joel Bouchard and his track record with the Blainville Boisbriand Armada as their president, owner, GM, uh, coach. He wore every hat there and succeeded mightily with them and, and wore the GM hat for Team Canada and a silver medal gold medal bid at the at the world junior championship over the last two years so to make all those changes while you're doing a good job drafting is to ensure that development is going to take a major step forward because let's face it you know six years of Sylvain Lefebvre at the helm of the AHL squad they missed the playoffs every year but one and were swept out in the one year they made it. And that wasn't good for development. And you think about the guys who graduated to the NHL, it's a feat that they would play games. You know, that's what you're looking for as a, as an amateur scout when you're picking these guys out. Are they going to play NHL games? I think a lot of people misconstrue that everyone's looking for a superstar and they want to make sure that they're going to end up being 50 goal scorers in the NHL. At the end of the day, there's very few people 
there's you know 1% of the 5% of the guys who are drafted that will be of star quality and one of them that will be superstar uh, the idea is to get as many NHL games as possible out of these kids and but at the end of the day like you look at all the first rounders that for whatever reason flamed out in Montreal whether it was Jared Tenorti or Nathan Bully or Alex Galchenyuk or you know leave a couple off the list uh, Louis LeBlanc it didn't work out for whatever reason, whether it was on the drafting side or the development side. So those two changes, as the Canadians are 100% more focused on their future than they are their present, uh, are, are instrumental. They're huge. So there might be some better days ahead. They just won't be on the uh, immediate horizon. Eric. You want a top six? You want a top Oh, yeah, six? you oh, got it. Go. Oh, nice. Got the whiteboard <laughs> the out. Fly. Wow. All right. You got top line will be Domi. Drew A. Gallagher. And uh, the second line will be Tart Tatar, uh, Dano, and one of Lakenin or Byron when Byron is healthy. Better than the Ottawa Senators. <laughs> there you go. You got one team top. <laughs> we'll, see. We'll, we'll see. see. <laughs> yes, that's true. All right. Well, we will see relatively soon. Eric, thanks for coming on, man. Enjoy uh, the start of training camp here in a couple days. My pleasure, guys. Always, always fun with you guys. All right, that is Sportsnet's Eric Engels coming on to talk about the end of another era in Montreal. The captain, Max Pacioretty, moved out for uh, a return that we can safely say is all about the futures. This week on Sportsnet, Rory, I wrote about the four big Mm -hmm. trades that have defined Mark Bergevin. I pointed out in the lead, it's kind of funny to think at one point, Bergevin was seen as this guy who was a very competent, maybe even good GM, at least in terms of making kind of non-essential moves through the first four years of his tenure. It was, you know, every time they made a a move that was kind of around the periphery or a buy at the deadline, it seemed like a pretty good move. But the, I guess the knocker, the chatter was, hey, when's this guy really going to sink his teeth into something? Here we are, boom, since 2016, you got Subban for Weber kicks it off. That's in uh, right before free agency of 2016. One year later, you get Drewan for Sergachev. And then this summer, two, Alex Galchenyuk for Max Domi from the Coyotes. And now, of course, most recently, Pacioretty for Suzuki, Tatar, and a second rounder. So you that body of work in a couple years, that is going to quickly come to define yeah. your time with the team. So let me ask you, as someone who follows the Canadians especially closely, so the Subban trade... I think is universally frowned upon in, in when you take a, a long-term view at it, especially. And, you know, the, the way Bergevin has signed and accumulated over the years, those like third line sandpaper guys in a Carl league that's getting Olsner, faster Eric and faster. Mentioned yeah. Yeah. I mean, these kind of moves, there's a, there's a lot of kind of down moves that, you know, you don't inspire a lot of confidence in Mark Bergevin. Looking at this team today with Drew Ann, a young guy, Max Domi, a good setup guy, could could complement Druen very well. Brennan Gallagher, I think better years are to come for this guy. He should should be healthy, you would hope. You know, Carey Price is signed for the long term, so you you have that stability back there. How do you feel about this team now with with the center depth that they have in the prospect system too? Do you feel any better, any more confident in the GM today than you did maybe two years ago when there was a lot of kind of mushy little moves being made? Here's what I would say about Montreal and maybe specifically Bergevin because obviously he's the one making the the hockey decisions. 
I just think they're late to the party on, hey, this is what the league is about. And it seems like they finally, since they realized that, they've done a decent job. And we mentioned with Eric... Uh, the the draft. I mean, who knows? We're talking about guys who might yeah. not play for a couple of years, but they have at least signaled, "Hey, we are all in on guys who might be five foot nine, but can really stick handle and all that." Yeah. So I do feel better about that, and I do think there's there's kind of some sneaky reason for optimism. That's the good version. The bad side is in all these prospects, I still don't see a gem. No one's talking about the guy who's going to be the answer for going toe-to-toe with Jack Eichel or Barkov or right. Steven Stamkos or Austin Matthews. P.S. Those guys are all in your division. Yeah. And you just look at that division and you see teams that are either already great, like Toronto, Tampa, Boston, or a team like Buffalo that it seems like in short order could be really good. And do I think the, that Montreal is going to improve in coming years? Yes, but I, I just don't know how they are going to topple those teams. And I go back to it and anyone who's, heard me on this podcast talking about any number of teams knows that I just feel like you got to be all in and there's still this looming question of or maybe it's not a looming question because they've already decided but it just seems like Price and Weber are not going anywhere and if you're truly all in on trying to to turn things over I think there's a case to be made you have to look hard at moving those guys now who knows maybe in today's NHL where Youth can come up so quickly. You Mm -hmm. say, we're going to take a volume approach. We're going to have three years in a row. We're going to draft 10, 11, 12 guys. We're going to hope someone really hits. And we're going to keep our goalie who may still be a a league MVP sometime in the next three or four years. But there is still that nagging question in my head of, okay, so if you're doing this, why do you seem fully committed to keeping the 31-year-old goalie, to Mm -hmm. keeping the 33-year-old defenseman who... You can talk about contracts and injuries and this, that, and the other. Those are still guys who, to different degrees, would have enormous value out there. So how you balance the, we're still trying to win, but we're still trying to get better in the future, I think is really tough. I don't underestimate how difficult it is, but I just have never heard a a case anywhere in life, really, where you're like, well, we took a half measure and things worked out amazing. Yeah, and to your point about who that superstar is, given what they invested in him, it has to be Yasperi Kutkanyemi. It it has to be. You know, they call him the most underrated player in the league, but I think that said so much that he's not underrated anymore. Kutkanyemi was not even close to a point-per-game player. He didn't play center in the top finish league. He was a winger, so you know he's got to make that that transition and make also the transition to North American ice. So the jury is still out. And I just wonder, I really wonder, and I might look foolish a couple years from now saying this, if the Habs are going to regret passing out Philip Zadina because that's the guy you look at and you can see the goals coming from the guy, just the quickness and the power of the shot off of his stick. That seems to me like that standout game-breaking potential, which I don't know if Kakinami has or not, but Montreal's all in on him. He needs to be that guy for this team. But, like, you're right. They're not, they're not really, they don't look like they're in a position to pick top three again with the team that they've assembled. They look like they should be, you know, I'm not going to pick them to make the playoffs, but, but barring a lottery pr- yeah, win, with a healthy they price, be, they finish 20. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and the mushy middle train rolls on. Oh man. Yes. It, we're talking about uh, the Canadians prospects and prospects everywhere. Probably getting pretty excited with the start of camp just around the corner here. There are some young guys heading 
to various cities across North America now, hoping, and this is the season of hope in hockey, hoping that maybe they can crack those opening night rosters, exhibition games beginning next week. I don't know if you want to call that real hockey fans, but you know what I mean. NHL hockey guys wearing the jerseys you, you're familiar with are going to be skating around on the ice. And I actually have to say, I find the early part of the exhibition season always intriguing because that's when you get to see a lot of guys sure. who you don't get to see much. So we do have that to look forward to. And we are, of course, just going to be ramping things up as September rolls along, moving toward the start of the NHL season in October. Make sure you're checking out the Tape to Tape podcast on sportsnet.ca or in iTunes. Subscribe there. Follow Rory on Twitter, at Rory Boylan. Myself, at Dixon on Sports. And check back next week for more glass rattling, hockey action on Tape to Tape. Tape to Tape.